You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Moshe Hoffman and Erez Ueli. Moshe is at the Max Planck Institute doing Well, evolutionary biology, I think, is the focus at the Max Planck Institute, but also at MIT Sloan School and a little bit at Harvard. And Erez is at MIT Sloan School, also a little bit at Harvard. And you're both the authors of this book here called Hidden Games, The Surprising Power of Game Theory to Explain Irrational Human Behavior. Now, I have to say, this book checks all the boxes with me. I teach game theory. I teach behavioral economics. I've taught evolutionary biology. And so you guys really are straddling a whole bunch of disciplines. And of course, I want to talk about how you think about interdisciplinary research in today's world. But the book is really about how you can apply theoretical frameworks from game theory to things beyond the standard behaviors, standard activities like economics and, I mean, financially motivated activities or maybe explicitly activities around reproduction. I mean, it's all about symbols. It's about speech. It's about social norms. And I think that what you're trying to do is show how all of these things that humans do in our, what we might think of as culture, have a hidden logic. And the logic takes us back to underlying motivations which would be more familiar to those of us in biology and economics. So how did you guys come to see the interconnectedness of all these different disciplines? This one's for you. Both Eris and I have a pretty strong econ background. We both got our PhDs at University of Chicago. I also did my undergrad there. So strong background in classic thinking through incentives using game theory. And I guess what you alluded to that's different, one step of what's different is in the classical models, we're thinking about people consciously, rationally deliberating through what's optimal. And since then, there's been also a tradition of using game theory in in biology. And so I learned about that from reading Richard Dawkins and The Selfish Gene. So he kind of argues that you can use, he summarizes work from like Maynard Smith and Fisher, Trivers, that says, look, you can use repeated prisoner's lemma to understand why bats share blood. You can use the hawk dove model to understand animal territoriality. You can use, you know, Spence, costly signaling to understand long tails and birds and chirping for baby birds to get fed. And so also this tradition in biology to, to apply game theory. And there, the optimization isn't through conscious, strategic, deliberative thought. It's through natural selection. That's what's optimizing. And like you alluded to there, what's being optimized isn't happiness or wealth. It's just fitness. And so we're trying to build on that tradition, but also recognizing that in humans, there's another optimization process that's fairly unique. And this is building on the tradition, which we've also been exposed to through our colleagues at Harvard, like Joe Henrik and Rob Board, who's at ASU, who study cultural evolution. And then there's also other people who study, you know, learning processes, like in the cognitive science literature and things like reinforcement learning. And so those processes also optimize. And it's not evolution. It's things like learning. And what's being optimized there is, is also slightly different. It's things that were genetically encoded to count as rewards, like access to mates or legacies and prestige. And those things bias our learning processes in the same way that reproductive success biases evolutionary processes. And by then 
looking at, okay, what kind of preferences and beliefs do we learn through these processes? You can gain a lot of insight onto weird aspects of our preferences and beliefs, especially now once you add in the fact that optimization in social settings, you know, you can use tools from game theory and insights from game theory. So we're combining those different ideas. This learning process is what it optimizes with insights from game theory and following in those different traditions, we can explain all sorts of puzzles of human social behavior. Yeah. I mean, in terms of social behavior, you're really trying to back out the underlying logic of the things that we normally think of as purely cultural, the passion and aesthetics, altruism, symbols. And so, I mean, you guys don't really make this nature culture distinction, do you? Not really. You could have nature doing the optimization via biological evolution. You could have culture doing it via some sort of social learning or reinforcement learning at the individual level. The key thing is that we need is for optimization to be going on. And as long as it is, understand how it's going on to some mm -hmm. extent so that we're not applying it in some crazy way to the wrong thing, then I think we're fine. We make these three distinctions in the book, all of which resonate with me, right? There's the distinction between <clears throat> primary and secondary rewards, between proximate and ultimate motivations. And then, of course, this emic etic view of things. And it's that last one, I think, that really resonated because in game theory, we're always talking about the first two. The third is one that we do, but we don't do it explicitly, right? We flip back and forth in our lives between the inside view and the outside view. As you walk through your daily life, right? I mean, do you take this anthropological view of everything that you do as you're walking down the street? Do you examine your behavior vis-a-vis -vis your colleagues and vis-a-vis -vis the merchants that you engage with through this anthropological lens? Do you ever shut it off and just live? You know how it is. Like as soon as you become an economist, you're always viewing the world through this lens of incentives and equilibria. And this just opens up an avenue towards seeing the role of incentives and equilibria in an additional space that historically maybe you wouldn't have done that as much, but it's just expanding that a little bit. So yeah, I think it's very hard to turn it off. You can simultaneously have your own emic explanations that you give for your behavior. You have your own proximate mm -hmm. feelings that you feel, and then, you know, you're also able to analyze that to some extent in, in yourself and in others, and probably better in others than in yourself. Does that change the nature of how you engage in symbolic behavior? Do you do less of it, more of it? Are you more strategic in your use of, say, symbolic behavior, group identification behavior, and so forth, status signaling? I think it makes us a little bit more self-aware and maybe more prone to notice our own hypocrisy. So yeah, I think we're both willing to call each other out. And I think maybe are a little bit less prone to, I don't know, at least myself, I'm less prone to kind of argue highfalutin mm -hmm. principles or do other things that, that I might recognize, okay, there's probably a more selfish motive going on at play there. You don't need to lie about it. And maybe I'm a little bit more self-aware as, as a result. Yeah, specifically when it comes to like certain ideologies that I might have held when I was younger, a political ideology, maybe I was like more pro-Israel or free market libertarian or things like that. And now I'm like, wait a minute, where'd that come from? Well, you know, we were talking about the World Cup last night. And so Eris was mentioning that, Okay, he was really rooting for Messi. But he made sure to caveat when he said that, okay, I kind of know I'm only rooting for him because there's a sense that it's somewhat deserved and it, it feels like he ought to win. But I know, what does that even mean, ought to? And like, in what sense does he deserve it? That's kind of weird. And so he's kind of realizing, okay, at approximate level, I support him, but I also realize there's something weird going on here and mm -hmm. he's calling himself out while he does it. Well, in particular, I mean, in terms of aesthetics, right? So you have a whole section where you talk about aesthetic taste as a costly signal, right? Yeah, here it's the 
other way around. But it made me, I was like, wait, this is going to ruin my appreciation of fine wine. If I remember I had an ex-girlfriend who told me that the only reason why I liked fine wine was as a status signal or whatever. And, and I was like, wait, I drink my nice wine when I'm all by myself and doing some takeout Chinese food. I'll open up a nice bottle of Burgundy, even if no one's around, right? I mean, is your enjoyment of a good wine ruined by your realization that this is something that probably serves some social signaling status purpose? I was only kidding when I said it's the other way around. I mean, what ends up happening to me is that like I'll look into, like there's a new puzzle that we're looking into. Maybe it's mm -hmm. like, why do people fall into certain rabbit holes where they start to like obsess over something that seems kind of related to something we would care about, but then yeah. it kind of goes off on its own tangent. And, and the example that I have in mind here is there's a whole subculture of denim fanatics. Yeah. That what they like is very high-end denim that was made using older machines and as a consequence is tougher and better quality like the denim used to be. But then the thing that they particularly prize is the way the denim fades. And in order to get the denim to fade properly, they do things like they never wash it. They buy it with too much ink on it and then get ink all over everything. Once it does need to be washed, they put it into the freezer because you're not supposed to wash it if you want to get really stark fades. And you know, clearly they're doing this crazy stuff. And I started looking into this because it was a puzzling behavior that we wanted to be able to understand. And next thing I knew, I was buying fancy Japanese jeans. And so I fell for it in the other way direction. And I think that's often the way it goes with aesthetics. It's the opposite of ideologies. Is I, For me, at least, I look into it and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool stuff. Wait, I, I yeah. Well, I mean, it's like appreciating athletic performance, right? I mean, yes, of course, being a good athlete is in many ways a status signal. It probably has positive results in, in the mating game, but it doesn't make it any less amazing and beautiful to observe, right? Yeah. And if anything, sometimes it makes you appreciate it better. I think like mm -hmm. anyone who looks at my jeans will just see jeans. Like, they're not really, they don't see anything special about them. And so the fact that you've bothered to try to understand what's going on in the subculture suddenly does make you appreciate it to some extent. Mm -hmm. But it does also at the same time make you realize how ridiculous you are. Like the two of us make fun of each other for this kind of thing. But the, I mean, there's something weird about these types of status goods, which is like half of the game is to be able to pay for it, but the other half is to be able to talk about it in an intelligent yeah. way. And so by, by doing the research, Urs is getting that costly signal is now cheaper for him. And so so maybe that's part of why he's internalized that is cool is because, well, it's not so costly now that he has all this information to, to share about it, which is yeah half the signal. One of the interesting points that you're making is that as these skills or aesthetic sets of knowledge become more complex, then there's sort of a pushback, right? Where people try to emphasize subtlety. And it made me think of this, this term sprezzatura that Castiglione talks about a lot, right? Which is you want to work really hard, but you don't want anybody to see you sweat, so to speak. That's right. Sprezzatura, uh, I think, translates roughly to the ability to look effortless trying hard to look effortless or something like that. Right. And yeah, there is definitely an element of spesitua in our fashion and one could wonder. And I think it's part of a more general phenomenon of looking effortless in, in art more broadly or in aesthetics more broadly. And I think one could try to understand where does that come from. You talk about, uh, was it shibui? Is that right? The That's Japanese right. term? That's right. So, Which seems closely related. And then, you know, you talk a lot about motivated reasoning. So I've had a lot of podcasts where we talk about motivated reasoning. And I think the sort of conventional view is that people engage in motivated reasoning in order to feel good. Now, of course, this is, if anything, it's approximate cause, right? So that doesn't really provide any explanation for why people engage in motivated reasoning. 
So can you tell us a bit about your approach to motivated reasoning and how it, it differs? I mean, it, it reminded me a lot of the work of Dan Sperber and Hugo Mercier. Right. It reminded me a lot of their, their work, but you add a bit of a spin to it. So the way that we explain motivated reasoning is we first talk about just looking at conscious strategic behavior. What's the optimal kind of information that you want to collect and convey if you're trying to persuade someone else? And so we present a standard model of that, which we talk about in terms of evidence games, which for your audience familiar with game theory models, they're just kind of verifiable signals where you can verify when you have the signal, but not when you don't. And so if you imagine, I don't know, how technical do you want me to get for your audience? Go for it. All right. So, you know, there's two states of the world, maybe one where I'm smarter and more attractive and I'm trying to get you to go on a date with me or to hire me for a job or something. Okay. And so I want you to believe that the state is one. So that's a standard persuasion context. My utility is increasing in in your beliefs that the state is one. Okay. Now let's say I get a a signal that's either zero or one. And now maybe it's more likely to be a one in a state where it's one. Okay. So, So this is evidence that would support the state being one. Now I could verify that I have this evidence, okay? Then I'll just show it to you. And that's obviously the optimal thing to do when I have it. Now, what if the evidence is bad? So when I have it, it actually decreases your odds, your posteriors that the state is one. Then in that case, I wouldn't want to show it to you. And I'd like to prove to you that I don't have it when I don't, but there's no way to do that. I can only verify when I have the signal, not when I don't. Okay. So that's a standard model of how evidence works. It's verifiable when you have it, not when you don't. When the evidence increases your beliefs in the direction I want it to go, I I reveal it. Otherwise, I withhold it. Okay. So standard game theory analysis, you'll fully anticipate that. If I don't show you the evidence, if it's positive, then you assume I don't have it. If it's negative, then you'll assume nothing because, you know, in equilibrium, I wouldn't show it to you anyway. So, okay, fine. So everybody's fully Bayesian. Everybody's acting completely optimally, but I'm still revealing evidence in a very biased way. I'm only showing you the good stuff. Okay, so that's classic model. That's one model that we present that explains one feature of spin. You only show the good stuff in equilibria. The other side knows that's all you're going to show, and they interpret it accordingly. Fine. But wait, but wait, you say sometimes they, that we don't discount it, though, right? Like we don't do an appropriate discount. We're not sufficiently skeptical oftentimes when we're, we encounter spin, right? Yeah, that's right. And you can ask why that happens. And I guess two possible answers. One is it takes some cognitive resources and effort and motivation for you, you to adjust. And maybe if you're sufficiently motivated and you're not under cognitive load, you'll do better. But, you, you know, a bias still might persist. There's bounded rationality type constraints. One ingredient for that is you need to be motivated. And sometimes you're not motivated to, to get it right. You're on the same team as me and you're also trying to spin. So, you know, if you're watching Fox News and I'm saying very biased things to you, well, then at the same time, you're also looking to collect biased evidence to tell Mm -hmm. to your friends. So that's another reason why you might not be properly adjusting. You're not viewing Fox News, let's say, as a provider of information. You're seeing it as a provider of ammunition. Yeah, that's right. That's what we would argue is going on in the receiver side and also the sender side if the sender is being consciously, deliberatively strategic. But then to get to motivated reasoning, we add one more step to the mix. And by the way, this is kind of one model of one feature of spin. And it'll end up, once I add this next ingredient, it'll set, explain one part of motivated reasoning. In our book, we have three similar models that cover three similar features of spin. So h- how do we then explain motivated reasoning? Well, one way you could think about it then is also, you know, I'm only presenting you the supportive evidence and not the non-supportive evidence. Uh, okay, but then me myself, am I going to properly adjust for all of the biased evidence that I myself a- am presenting? If I tell you, actually, this is all I'm showing, I know I could I put in a lot of effort to now adjust for it in my own beliefs 
so that then when you're not around on a private decision, I do things optimally. But that, that again, that's going to take effort on my part to adjust. That's going to take motivation for me to adjust. And the default is to kind of anchor on the lies that I'm telling you and the mm-hmm. bias information that I'm telling you. And so there's good reason to think that what I'm motivated to tell you is also going to end up affecting my own beliefs, again, because of things like bounded rationality. Now, is, it, is this just the Trivers story where you're a better liar if you lie to yourself? Yeah, I think that that's part of it. And, and that was maybe going to be the, the option that, that I mentioned next. But one argument that you can say is, okay, uh, if you can somehow see what I truly deep down believe, that can create an incentive for my true deep down beliefs to also stay biased. But I think I'm not even sure you need that in a standard cognitive effort story where we amortize, we kind of save the data of what I told you and not all the full information that we got to that data. And we anchor and adjust and, you know, standard bounded rationality stories could also get you there. Both those mechanisms are reasonable ways by which we internalize. And we talk a lot about internalization, how the strategic incentives get built into our own beliefs and preferences. Those are two mechanisms by which our motivation to spin can also end up being internalized into motivated beliefs that we hold ourselves. Economists, I think, tend to think that we separate out our understanding of the world and then our strategic behavior. So we always think that a better, more accurate understanding of the world is going to help us, right? You go get that better understanding of the world, and then you decide, okay, now do I tell the truth or do I lie or how do I interact with others? You know, what you're saying is that a better understanding of the world, a more accurate understanding of the world, isn't necessarily going to help you in your strategic interactions in in all cases. And in those cases, we wouldn't expect to see somebody pursuing a more accurate version of the world. And so you're not going to engage in, in motivated reasoning when you're, you're just trying to open a door with a key, right? You're going to actually try to figure out what works and what doesn't work if you're, I guess, engaging the physical world, right? Exactly. You don't have motivated reasoning about whether the stove is hot. Yeah. The core model that you spend a lot of time on are these state signal structures. Could you talk a bit about that? As game theorists, I think a lot of our models are binary. You're either a good or a bad person. You're either trustworthy or untrustworthy. The real world is full of continuities. I mean, if you're not a game theorist, then, you know, the entire world for you as an economist is a world of continuity. Could you talk a bit about how do these specific models, how do you get them to do so much work? The models that you're referring to, I guess, we're we're trying to highlight the central role that coordination plays. And many situations involve coordination. So norm enforcement involves coordination. You only want to punish norm violators. You expect others to, to agree with you that they violated the norm and maybe they'll punish you if you don't punish it or they'll reward you for punishing the norm violation. So there's an essential need to coordinate with people on, on norm violations on what counts as a non-violation. That's one uh, of several settings that we talk about that, that involve an element of coordination. And whenever an element of coordination comes into play, all sorts of interesting counterintuitive effects come into play too. It's very hard to coordinate on continuous variables, much easier to coordinate on categorical distinctions. So if we want to have a norm that says you can't wantonly kill civilians, well, it's maybe somewhat easy to enforce that if you can go from zero civilians to one, but it's much harder to say, okay, well, 50 people or 5% of your population, it's, it would be very, very hard for us to agree on exactly when that norm is violated. So the zero to one point, it, that's somewhat easy to agree on. And the type of weapon is easy to agree on because mm-hmm. those are both discrete differences. And so, so we kind of argue a lot of our norms have this feature that they treat zero very different from one. They treat categories like types of weapon very different. And that's, that's a result of 
the need to coordinate and the need to coordinate is therefore going to lead to things that are kind of second best. Like we might want a norm that says, well, there's a utilitarian outcome. Well, you, mm. utilitarian, that's very continuous. You know, you have trade-offs and we end up with norms instead that are very categorical. You can never torture no matter how much yeah. the benefits. So that's one implication of the need to coordinate. And there's going to be a relation between that and common knowledge and plausible deniability and all sorts of other puzzling behaviors that we bring up in the maybe your econ audience that have heard about. Well, I was doing a podcast recently with a biologist who was describing that even fish, when they're fighting over territory, if you lay down a bunch of cans or something between their home bases, then the conflict gets substantially reduced because there's a salient boundary. But when it's just pure sand and there's no clear line that they can fixate on, then they wind up fighting a whole lot more, which I found was amazing. You can pretty much create a peace between these fish just by laying a bunch of cans down somewhere between their territories. It doesn't even have to be 50-50. It could be 60-40, 70-30, but wherever that artificial object is, it allows for better coordination. Yeah, that's a good example for us. We're going to dig it up. Well, okay, so there's good norms and bad norms, right? So you talk about racism, right? That's obviously a bad norm. And you have a toolbox for helping to strengthen norms and also to disrupt norms. And I love this story because in competition theory, we're always thinking, okay, how do we break up collusion, right? When companies are trying to fix prices. But then we're also, okay, how do we facilitate cooperation among industry players if we're trying to get them to, say, invest in research, Okay, and so a lot of, you know, antitrust law and so forth is about tweaking those incentives to disrupt or facilitate cooperation or coordination. So could you talk a bit about what are some of the mechanisms that you can use to jumpstart norms? I know in the behavioral law and economics literature, they talk about how the law can often drive norms, right? So you have a seatbelt law or, you know, a pick up the poop law and all of a sudden everybody starts chastising their neighbors. But then in other cases, it's the norm that drives the law. But the idea is that you could use something like law. But if you don't have that tool at available, what are some of the other things you can do to strengthen or weaken norms? We usually talk about three sets of tools. One is if you want to promote a norm, you want to increase observability of the behavior you're trying to encourage, make it so that other people can find out so that they can chastise or reward. The second would be to decrease the amount of plausible excuses people have. So if you're asking people to engage in a behavior and they have lots of excuses available, then it makes it harder for people to punish or chastise because, you know, they might not be viewed as punishing or chastising when they should, and they might be themselves concerned about looking like jerks. And then the third is basically set expectations. So if you're going to um, recruit the aid of a bunch of third-party punishers, then what you want is to get everybody on board with the fact that this is something that is going to be third-party punished. And so to some extent, what you're doing is not just announcing to individuals, hey, you should be doing this behavior. You're announcing to the people around them, hey, you should punish people who don't engage in the behavior. And you do that kind of in public to get everybody on board at once. So those are the three categories of things. We, and you could then think about doing the opposite when it comes to disrupting bad norms like racism, where you would want to, or to disrupt things like collusion, where you would, economists do talk about the fact that posted prices make it easier to collude because yeah. they make it very observable whether somebody has cooperated or not. And they talk about disrupting collusion by messing with the mechanism by which they post prices. But we also talk about things like introducing plausible excuses and doing things like messing with expectations, making public announcements that could screw up the expectations of the folks who are trying to cooperate in this antisocial way. So this is also true in the employment setting, right? So in labor economics, we talk about how 
employees can collude to reduce productivity, right? And so right. to that extent, even if you offer piece rates, it's not going to really work if they're working kind of side by side. The great example from, I think it's Barenke et al, looked at fruit pickers and found that they were able to collude when the fruit was low but not so able to collude when the fruit was high. And so they worked real hard in order to earn the piece rate because they couldn't see each other in these higher, taller bushes. But when they could see each other, everybody, they enforced a, you know, take it easy norm. Now, I want to turn to virtue signaling, right? I don't know if you actually use that term, but obviously it's a term that is in popular discourse quite a bit. And I was at the theater last night here in Berkeley. And here in Berkeley, I don't know if we're the only place in the world outside of China where everyone wears masks, you know, to the opera and to the symphony and to the theater. But I was with a friend of mine who's not from here. It's like, this is kind of crazy. And I was like, look, if you go to a synagogue, you put a yarmulke on and you don't question the functionality of the, of the yarmulke. You just understand that that's just what you do, right? Out of respect for where you are. And so when you come to Berkeley, you just put your mask on and don't think about it too much. Because, I mean, I think at this point, it doesn't serve a whole lot of public health objectives. It requires a little bit of a flip because I guess people are much more sensitive to something that is serving the purpose of virtue signaling in their home environment as opposed to particularly if you have this emic way of looking at things. You could ask in general, where does our morality come from and our norm-complying behaviors? And at some level, it's it's selfish in the sense that everything has to evolve or be learned. Yeah. And so presumably there's something where we don't believe that there's a fundamental moral truth that we discover through like wisdom or something well, like speak for yourself. So all of our morality in some sense has to come from like social enforcement and social mm -hmm. signaling and these kind of things. And so then in what sense is virtue signaling unique? And I'm guessing what people usually mean by that is, well, it's something that you're doing very consciously. So you haven't fully internalized it and you're not going to be principled about it. You're only kind of doing it because you're consciously thinking through this will make me look good. And that particularly feels dirty. And they also, to some extent, mean cases where it seems like the benefit accrue primarily to you and not to society. When you engage in, in third party punishment of a bad behavior, often, you know, making it so that other people engage in, in behaviors that are pro-social. Originally, when we third party punished people who didn't wear masks, that came from a desire to try to stop COVID from spreading when we didn't have vaccines and so on. And so it does serve a social function. But then, you know, now it seems like to some extent, it's been co-opted for people to show off a certain set of values or group mm. membership or something like and, that. And to the extent that you're aware that it's no longer serving that purpose or you should be aware, it's kind of obvious that, well, the only reason you could be doing this is because you're just trying to look good. To the extent that people are conscious of that and like it just seems so unreasonable otherwise or so disproportionate or so obviously not serving the greater good, then I think we start to think about that very differently. And we do have a model. I don't think we got to it in this book, but we, we have a model where we talk about when people are kind of moral, but for the very deliberate about why they're being moral. They're, they're kind of thinking through, oh, this will give me reputational benefits. Even if at, at the bottom of the day, whether you think through it or not, it's got to be sustained in equilibrium. It's got to be somehow incentivized. When you think through it, that kind of allows you to adjust your behavior in a more circumstantial way. And, and that makes you less trustworthy in general. And so, so we have this like general story about like behavior that's more principled versus behavior that's more consciously, deliberatively doing good. We tend to think of the latter as, as much, much less principled and, and much less reliable. And so I think that's part of what people are picking on when they say, oh, you're just virtue signaling. It's, oh, you're doing this too consciously. You have some stuff in the book about charity and how people engage in charitable behavior. And it's disappointing because it seems like people aren't 
really concerned with the outcomes or the impact of their charitable behavior. And so I remember I had a relative who was uh, soliciting some funds for a, a charitable cause. And I did a little research and, and discovered that this charitable cause was pretty ineffective. It didn't really do anything. I think there's a place you can go and find out how much of the funds raised go towards administration. And I think 100% of this went towards administration. And so I, I discussed with her, I said, hey, this thing doesn't really do anything. And she said, well, of course it does. I mean, it makes all of us feel more charitable. And I thought, well, that, that's a very sophisticated view of things. But this raises even bigger questions because, you know, in the Bible, they say, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And you're supposed to do charity in a way that you're not showing it off to other people. You know that you're doing it. And so you're in some ways signaling to yourself that you're charitable. Is there a way that you can design a charity strategy that is impactful, that is not in some way motivated by some strategic purpose? Yes and no. I mean, I think the fact that it's strategic in and of itself does not make it so that you can't make it impactful. I would start by kind of separating out there's sort of two questions on the table. One is when people are giving, are they giving kind of for the quote, right reason? And if they're not giving for the quote, right reasons, is that a problem? And the other one is, Regardless of why they're giving, people seem to be terrible at giving if you measure them based on the impact they're having. And I think that I would tackle those somewhat separately. So I'll start with the impact thing. So Mo mentioned earlier, we have this model that says we can't really coordinate so effectively when it comes to continuous variables. And here we are with another continuous variable impact. Some charities are the, their impact is very high, some lower, some basically close to zero. It's a continuous variable. There we go. We have a pretty difficult situation on our hands in terms of coordinating to, to norm enforce so that people only give to the most impactful charities. So what we're going to need to do is to somehow coordinate on something else. GiveWell, the charity uh, evaluator, has given us a model of how one might try to do that. The effective altruists are not currently in vogue, thanks to the behavior of the FTX founder. But GiveWell, I still think, is a good example of how one can potentially get around this. Basically, there are certain certifications that we could coordinate on. And if something hits that certification, great. And if it doesn't, then we don't give to it. And we could only reward people for giving to charities that have received that certification. And as long as we think that those certifications are doing something fairly meaningful, then that would improve the impacts that we would be having. Now, it would be imperfect. GiveWell has certain decisions it has to make when assessing the impact of a charity. And other people might disagree over whether some things should count and some things shouldn't count and exactly how one counts them and so on. But at least it would probably, on average, improve. In general, anytime you go from continuous to categorical, you lose a little information in ways like the ones that we just described. It's somewhat less efficient. It's what economists refer to as second best instead of first best. So that's how one might try to tackle the impact thing, and hopefully we'll move in that direction. In terms of deliberation, there's a question of, to some extent, there's a cost when people are less deliberate, when they give for the wrong reasons, but are only giving for the right reasons emotionally and stuff, then on the one hand, they tend to be more trustworthy, they tend to be more willing to give under more circumstances and things like that. But on the other hand, they tend to give to places that are less impactful. So there's this give and take that's going on there, a pro and a con. And so there you kind of have to balance the two. 
And I think people have this intuition when it comes to effective altruism in particular. They kind of vilify effective altruists and they have the sense that they're giving, but like in this way that makes them jerks. And I think that if you try to force everybody to constantly give in very particular ways that they don't find intuitive to charities that they don't find, but don't help them build up a reputation that they care about, that don't help them show off certain sets of values that they want to show off, you're just going to cut them out of charity entirely. And it's not clear to me which is better, having them give, but to ineffective charities or not give to effective charities. In the back of the symphony program, we have a list of all the donors. So the more you donate, the bigger your name is in the back. Should we think about having Nobel prizes for charitable impact, where we have some measure of impact and we put the big names up there based on impact? I think that'd be a really good kind of thing. Again, it's imperfect. Somebody's got to decide how we're going to measure impact and they're going to do it imperfectly. But I think that's better than what we've got right now. You also talk in some of the trust games how you can make small tweaks in the words that you use and elicit very different behaviors, right? So if you use the word take versus steal, a standard model would say, look, everyone understands what's going on here. But by changing the name, I mean, of what it is that you're doing, you're signaling to the participants in the experiment how what they're doing is being viewed. Is that by the experimenter or is it triggering some moral intuition when you change the wording? We hope it's the latter in that if they're really uh, trying to game it for us, that's not really the point of the experiment. The point of the experiment is to try to get at their intuitions from outside of this experiment and understand those better. And so we're kind of hoping that what we're doing is triggering some in intuition that these words have and then causing that to spill over into the lab. And so the lesson is trying to teach us, what we're trying to learn from this experiment is that people's altruistic sentiments, how much they're willing to give in like a dictator game, is a spillover effect. It's really shaped by the outside of the lab environment that tends to be where norms get enforced, where you can build up a reputation. And in those kind of settings, what the norm is really matters and how things are framed very much tells you what the norm is. How we interpret these experiments is they're telling you, oh, look, people are willing to give a lot more when it's framed this way versus that way. That suggests that our sense of giving is really being shaped by the outside world where norms get enforced and framing effects gives valuable information what the norms are and what will be enforced. And so you also have some interesting stuff on apologies. What are apologies for? I mean, it seems like cheap talk, right? How difficult is it if someone says, hey, if you say you're sorry, then you'll get all these benefits. Why would anybody refuse to say I'm sorry? It seems like a free pass, so to speak. Michael Schrey is an economist who's made a similar point, which is that in coordination settings, where, you know, in games with multiple equilibria, cheap talk, specifically when the cheap talk has specific features, like it generates common knowledge, it's very explicit. There's no plausible deniability. Everybody agrees on whether this specific phrase was uttered can affect which equilibrium we expect to be played. And so what an apology is doing, in essence, is we interpret it as it's kind of setting future expectations in a way that's self-fulfilling that, look, I'm not going to play hawk in this kind of situation in the future. I'm going to play dove. You're going to play hawk. And you'll expect, you know, in a hawk-dove game, there's multiple two equilibria, one where I play dove, you play hawk, one where you play dove, and I play hawk. Those equilibria are self-fulfilling. If we both expect me to play dove, I'm better off actually playing dove. And so an apology is just a way for us to coordinate on you're going to play hawk in the future. And you might induce me to apologize. You might tell me, look, if you don't apologize, I'll punish you. And so that's the idea. If I've misbehaved in a way that I want to reset the equilibria so that I play dove, that's going to be costly to me. So I might refuse to apologize, even though it's just cheap talk. I might not want to do it because I, I want to play Hawk in the future. But yeah, cheap talk when it generates common knowledge can matter in situations like the Hawk Dove game. 
So look, I think if you're designing a model of constrained optimization and you're trying to explain these behaviors, which traditional economists would view as irrational, I mean, it seems like there's two ways you could go about it. One is that you could emphasize the constraints, right? So you could have sort of a Herb Simon view, which says people have limitations on their cognition and they're lazy. And so we're going to come up with some crude rules and these crude rules are going to get it wrong a bunch of times. And that would be the more Kahneman-Tversky view of, quote, irrational behavior. But then there's a whole different approach, which is to dig deeper and figure out what is the functionality. And it de-emphasizes the crudeness of our reasoning. And it actually emphasizes kind of the subtlety and sophistication of our reasoning. And I see you guys sort of in that second camp. I mean, do you see that view displacing a lot of what behavioral economics has been doing by emphasizing the more, I guess, environmental rationality or ecological rationality of all these behaviors that we see as contrary to the neoclassical model? You want to do the politically correct one and I'll do the real one? Or the <laughs> I, think, I, I think the answer is we'd like for at least people to question whether when they see something that seems irrational, they have simply failed to understand the reason it's there mm -hmm. because they're thinking about it in the wrong way. Maybe they're analyzing it at the wrong level. Sometimes the answer is that cognition is limited in some way or there's these blunt tools as you're describing. But I think that there is a tendency to run towards that explanation anytime there's not an obvious explanation for the behavioral quirk. And part of what we hope this book convinces people is that, and we're far from the only people on that side of the argument, we're hoping this contributes to that side of the argument, is that sometimes it's just a matter of thinking a little bit harder and, then, and there is an underlying logic to the behavior. You can't study biology and not have an inclination towards that latter approach. Because when you study biology, there's hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, right? I mean, you have enough time to develop fairly sophisticated rules. And so with culture, you can develop ones that are even more sophisticated. Limited cognition should be a last resort when it comes to finding an explanation. You're not going to get any argument here. Did studying biology in some way help you to push you a little bit more in that direction? Do you think we should make economists take a little course? I used to teach a course on economics and biology like 25 years ago, but you don't tend to see that in the economics curriculum. I think that there's, we're drawing inspiration from folks who sat down and said, wait a minute, we don't have a theory right now. We need a theory. And what should constrain the kinds of answers we should be giving? What kind of framework should we be using most of the time? Darwin, of course, being the giant name in the room, but not the only one. I think that we would like to see more thinking along those lines. And I think that this is a, a theory of science question. It's one, especially I think Mo thinks about more. I don't know why I'm doing all the talking here, but I think that it's what counts as a good way to come up with a theory is something that, that I think he's challenging himself on every day and uh, examining amongst others. And I think it, there is some inspiration from biology that's, that's at play here. Yeah. I mean, but biologists do force us a lot to think through different levels of analysis, and including bringing things back to function and why things evolved. And yeah, I think economists and JDM and social psychologists could use more of that kind of grounding where it's okay to talk about things at approximate level, at a psychological level, but you should be forced to answer how that might be learned or evolved and do that extra step. And when you do that, you might notice that there's some holes in your argument or some further questions that need to be asked, and you might gain some extra insight from doing that. 
Yeah, it always seemed puzzling to me that psychologists, whenever they spot something, they come up with what they call a theory. And they say, oh, this is the, you know, the so-and-so theory, which now all of a sudden ex explains a whole bunch of stuff. But the theory itself doesn't have a theory to explain the theory. Is there an ultimate stopping point when you're trying to figure out where you draw the line in terms of causal explanation? I like to use the phrase grounding. I don't know if there's a better word in the philosophy of science literature, but you want to bring back your arguments to something that's well understood. So if you bring something back to like how it's learned or how it's evolved when it comes to a psychology, that makes sense because we, we know how evolution works. We know how learning processes work. But when you just say like this makes us feel like that, okay, but like, why does that make us feel good? When does that make us right. feel good? You haven't like, like terror management theory. You hear something like that and you're like, okay, yeah. Well, that definitely describes what we're seeing. I'm not sure if it explains it. Exactly. So it's going to beg as many questions as it answers. It's not really going to tell you when you'll get this effect or it won't give you that deep of an understanding of what's going on. But if you bring things back to a solid foundation. Sometimes the way I think of it is if you can take the word theory and replace it with strategy, then that's probably the right way to think of it for some of these papers. Oh, this is a terror management strategy. Got it. I teach strategy, so I spend a lot of time teaching business people who are going out into the world to do things. Do you think that, you know, what you are doing is providing people with a toolbox of strategies that they can use? How much do you view what you're doing as explanatory and how much do you view what you're doing as pragmatic? 90% in the former camp, 10% in the last camp. I think that when you understand things better, then there is some pragmatic influence of that. Often in order to really have a pragmatic impact, you have to do one more set of, you kind of have to work a little bit harder. You have to draw the connection for people. So for instance, we could talk about how norm enforcement works and people might get some pragmatic takeaways from that, but often it helps for us to draw them out further. And when we were talking earlier about observability, plausible deniability, and expectations, that was on us to, to look at the equilibria conditions that we were encountering and say, okay, these are the key features that enable for cooperation to arise in these kinds of settings, blah, blah, blah. And here's a translation of what these equilibrium conditions mean. Because if you just stick to the analysis, you have words like third-party punishment and higher-order punishment and multiple equilibria, which don't translate into, okay, but what do I do with that? Whereas observability, plausible deniability, expectations do. I think when it comes to some of the other models in the book, almost all of them would have pragmatic takeaways if one did the work to really draw out those pragmatic takeaways. I think we've done less work in those other domains and there's more work to be done. And therefore, I think the fair thing to say is we primarily focused in this book on explaining and here and there will be a pragmatic takeaway, but that's not the primary focus. Well, Arez, Mo, thank you so much for joining me. Barely scratched the surface of this very rich book, which if you're interested in learning a little bit about aesthetics, if you want to start a cult, if you want to do some norm enforcement or norm disruption, I know you de-emphasize the practical, but there's plenty of practical insights here in the book. And I don't think you can look at the world the same way after check it out, Hidden Games. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>